Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And I would like to thank you all for making it to the session today. And I would like to thank our panel, Paul and Peter, for sharing their, uh, their insights and these evolving market conditions. So the paper uh, I'm going to be talking about today, it's about um, the formal title is about the granular nature of large institutional investors. And uh, we're going to define what we mean by granular in a bit. But uh, it's a paper, it's a recent, uh, recent research with a colleague uh, here at Villanova, John Sadonov, and uh, with researchers at Ohio State and uh, the Swiss Finance Institute. And what we try to do, we try to relate um, the concentration of ownership by the largest asset managers out there with the risk and um, uh, uh, with the characteristics of the stocks that they own. And the idea that we're trying to test is whether they impound, these large asset managers, impound some of their idiosyncratic shocks into the portfolio of the stocks that they own. And we have several tests to test you know, um, um, uh, this relation and whether it's causal relation or not. But let's start it with, um, with, a, with a, um, uh, as a good motivation with a recent uh, anecdotal evidence. And uh, we can't choose better than the departure of uh, Bill Gross from PIMCO as an example of an exogenous shock that happened uh, you know, to PIMCO and to the assets of PIMCO. So in September 2014, it was announced suddenly that PIMCO is to, to leave, uh, uh, Bill Gross to leave PIMCO. And few months after uh, that news, especially in September and October, there was huge outflows from PIMCO as a whole and from the total return fund, which is you know, the, the flagship of, of PIMCO. We're talking about $1 billion of outflow per day from the total return fund. Uh, over the next few years, uh, we saw in, in, in 2013, there was a total outflows from PIMCO of $34 billion. In 2014, about $175 billion of outflows from the total return funds and from other uh, uh, funds, you know, from other funds that are like equity that invest in futures or options uh, from PIMCO. And in 2015, the outflows were about $80 billion and they kind of stabilized by December of 2015. What we, are, what we are after here in this paper is what we call the PIMCO effect. And there was a recent article in Wall Street Journal that illustrated that PIMCO effect and what investor perceived in terms of risk of being exposed to the same holding, to the same debt securities that PIMCO's total return fund was invested in them. And uh, in that article, it, it illustrates uh, the relation between the flows, the outflows, and the selling pressure that PIMCO was facing when there are lots of uh, outflows from their, their fund that pushed the performance of the securities that they hold and the fund overall from the 66th percentile to the 23rd percentile. And later on, when all these selling pressures subsided uh, uh, and uh, there was some kind of a reversion um, you know, of the, um, um, the fire sale prices of these securities, the performance of that portfolio jumped to be on the top one percentile of uh, its class. So this illustrates, I mean, this kind of, you know, return, this kind of change in the, the performance relative to other portfolios, it illustrates the shock, how it was transmitted from PIMCO as an institution to the holdings of PIMCO that caused that, uh, you know, huge uh, uh, drop in their, in their relative return and that performance of the underlying stocks and the reversal later on. So this is the kind of PIMCO effect that we, we are after in this paper. And what we try to say, uh, I mean, what we try to test here is whether this effect exists not only for PIMCO, but for you know, large asset managers in general. And uh, we try to provide evidence that it's not specific to the fire sale type of event. It can happen simply because of the sheer size of these large asset managers whenever, whenever they want to uh, rebalance their portfolios whenever they will try to trade to accommodate 
new investor flows, they will create a big footprint in markets that will exhibit in higher volatility and uh, you know, an impact on stock prices. So uh, the, the, the main, the, the reason why this question is important is because of two, you know, two recent events. The first one is the increased concentrations of, um, you know, of, of um, uh, ownership by the largest 10 asset managers in the US. What do we mean by that? This, this chart illustrates the growth of institutional ownership in the US in the last 35 years. If you focus on the largest asset manager, largest 10 asset managers, you will see that their ownership has increased from 15% of total institutional ownership to more than 35%. So in other words, institutional ownership in the last um, 35 years became more and more concentrated by the largest 10 asset managers. And to put it in perspective, the largest, the top, the largest asset manager in 1980 was roughly equal to 24 asset managers, random asset managers from the non-top institutions. In 2014, the largest asset manager was equal to more than 360 random non-top asset managers. So basically the concentration is, is substantial in, in different magnitudes and this has led um, you know, regulators to pose the questions about the implications uh, of these of, of this increased concentrations and you see lots of articles especially in the Financial Times talking about whether asset managers can be considered a systemic risk or whether the largest asset managers should be should be classified as CFI as uh, you know um, you know uh, systemically important financial institutions um, all these kind of media coverage and this kind of investigation by reporters they will spurred by a report in 2013 in September 2013 by the uh, OFR at the Department of Treasury. It's a research department at the Department of Treasury. And um, the report was about asset management and financial stability. In that report, uh, the, re the researchers at the Department of Treasury, they tried to pinpoint firms, asset management firms, as sources of risk. And I quote here, they said that the failure of a large asset management firm could be a source of risk depending on its size, complexity, and the interaction of its operations. What do they mean by that? Um, Yes, large asset managers, they have basically they have a huge concentration of assets that give rise to their economies of scale. But this concentration of assets creates a lot of correlations and interconnectedness and dependencies among these various units that at the same time can pose some risk, especially uh, under stress, exactly as we saw for the case of PIMCO. So under stress, the fear is that um, counterparties might fail to distinguish between a particular fund under stress and the firm as a whole. And according to that report, um, what this would cause, this would lead investors to take risk mitigating actions that could aggravate risks across uh, the firm funds and its account. And this um, might become a serious issue that regulators were trying to address. In our paper, we're not going that far into looking at the systemic implications of such concentration of assets. What we try to say is that this concentration might have some impact on the prices of uh, the holdings of these portfolios. So basically we build on the recent literature about the relationship between the concentration of ownership by mutual funds, mainly Greenwood and Tesmar paper, and the what, what they call price fragility or the stability of prices in financial markets. And we use the, um, the anecdotal example of PIMCO and some of the recent events that happened in the last few years as a support of our uh, story. In other words, when there were large outflows from PIMCO, they happened not only from total return fund, but from several positions, stock, you know, or future positions from the, uh, from PIMCO. And this kind of, um, you know, uh, this kind of example illustrates the failure on the part of investor to distinguish among 
you know, uh, which funds will be impacted by this departure versus the other funds within the company or the company as a whole. And we argue in our paper that it does not necessarily require a fire selling type of event to uh, manifest itself in markets. Actually, this effect can play out on a daily basis through the portfolio rebalancing, through you know, uh, the in trading by, by institutions to accommodate investor flows. And the idea here is that uh, you know, across the large institution, there is a lot of correlation among the various departments, which would cause the trading to be more focused and more concentrated. And simply because of their sheer size, they will have higher impact, uh, higher foot print in markets that uh, you know, would be different than if we have 10 or 100 mini uh, institutions that have the same total assets under management. In addition to that, within the large institution, usually there is a, you know, a shared investment philosophy and um, some kind of centralized strategy that might increase the correlation among their trading and uh, uh, their investment view. So overall, we argue that this kind of correlation, this kind of footprint in market might cause these institutions to impound some of their idiosyncratic risks in the stocks that they hold. So the basically the counter, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, or the alternative hypothesis that we are testing here is whether a large institution can be reduced to eight or maybe more mini or smaller institutions. And to count, I mean, the argument that we have in this paper is that when you have eight smaller institutions, each of them will be receiving its own kind of shocks, its own circulatory shocks. They will trade according, you know, accordingly. Some of them, uh, I mean, some of these trades might cancel each other out. So at the end of the day, the effect of trading and the concentration of the trading by these eight mini investors will be less than the largest investor. So here, hence come the idea of granularity or large institutions are granular. In other words, their idiosyncratic shocks will not die out in the aggregate they will be transmitted to the market simply because their, their effect is so, is so big and their trading is so much correlated. And that's what we try to test in the market. So we acknowledge the fact that these um, institutions will have their own dedicated uh, departments to minimize uh, the, the, the impact of their prices. They have, um, you know, I mean, they try to benefit from their economies of scales to absorb their shocks. But at the same time, the, 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 the hypothesis we are testing here is that the correlation in their trading and the correlation of the flows because of reputation effects and sometimes because of, of risks that some of their funds might face and might exhibit in, 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 a, in a correlation that will, will lead to a more concentrated trading. So we, we throw this in the model and we see what we get. So again, uh, the, the, main paper th uh, the main paper that started this granularity argument is Gabay 2011. And what they, what they tried to test there, whether a big impact on a company like Walmart would would, would cause some, uh, you know, some river, I mean, it would reverberate in the, in the US economy. And what they found is that the largest 100 uh, companies in the US, uh, they can, I mean, the, the changes, the shocks to these companies explain a third of the changes in the GDP of the US. So these largest 100 companies, they have, they are granular in that they affect the, 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 the entire economy or their idiosyncratic shocks do not die out. So we borrow from this argument and we use it in, uh, you know, in the context of institutional investors, and we are aware, or at least we tested against uh, uh, the alternative hypothesis that shocks are uncorrelated, and that there is a coordination among the units of a large institution to mitigate, uh, you know, the, the 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 impact, the price impact. So we use um, a, a very popular data for uh, academic research, the 13F data, which uh, um, um, mandates large institutions to. Um, report their 
quarterly snapshots of their long equity holdings with the SEC. So we use that data to construct the AUM, the long equity AUM of asset managers. And every quarter, we rank asset managers by their long equity AUM, and we focus on the largest 10 asset managers. And we look at the holdings of these largest 10 asset managers by AUM. And the baseline specification is, the we look, uh, is to look at the impact of ownership by these largest asset managers on the <coughs> volatility of, that, of, th of these stocks in the next period. Or in other words, the changes in the volatility of that stock in the next period. And we use some kind of a placebo test, which is the ownership by other institutions that have the same AUM. Uh, you know, we'll, uh, we control for liquidity and for um, other, um, effect, uh, other factors that might explain the volatility of the stocks and the cross-sectional um, risk-return relationships. What we found, this is the coefficient of the regression, um, the baseline regression, and what we found uh, that uh, uh, a 1% increase in ownership by the top three institutions would lead to 91 basis point increase in volatility. And we are talking here about quarterly, um, uh, I mean, daily volatility measured during the quarter, which is about, on average, 3.2%. So a 1% increase in ownership by the largest um, uh, uh, three institutions lead to about 91 basis point increase in volatility. If we look at the, the average ownership by the largest institutions, so the top three institutions have on average 10% ownership uh, uh, in the stocks in the US. What we will find, we multiply um, uh, this coefficient by the average ownership to see the average effect. And then we divide it by the daily volatility um, on average during the quarter is about 3.2%. So we see that these uh, top three institutions would lead on average to about 3% increase in the volatility um, you know, in, in equity markets. So per institution, we are seeing an increase of 1% of daily volatility, which is economically substantial uh, for, for, um, uh, for these uh, 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 stocks. And what we find, is, I mean, we, we run this analysis for all stocks and for the S&P 500 stocks. So we conclude that this effect is not necessarily a small stock phenomenon. We look at the crisis period. We see that this effect is amplified during crisis period. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's reflecting some, some type of risk. And to address, to make sure that this is not because large institutions invest in popular stock, we have two tests to, to address, to, to tease out the causality an instrumental variable technique to focus on the, uh, uh, on the local bias that institutions buy stocks that are closer to their headquarters. And the second one is the mega merger that happened in 2001, uh, 2009 between uh, BlackRock and BGI. And we see here an incremental effect because these two institutions became the largest asset manager. We see that the combined effect is bigger than the individual effect of these two units. So we see a significant increase of their ownership on uh, stock volatility after the merger that stayed stable for about eight quarters. So we conclude from these tests that um, the consolidation of large investors and the presence of large investors, it lead to higher volatility in the stocks that they own. How is that transmitted? It's through trading. So we, we run a horse race between the trades by these large investors and their ownership at the beginning of the quarter. And we found that the, it is trades actually that causes the increase in volatility. So we try to explain why this is the case. And the way to address that is through two channels. The first one are the concentrated and the large trades. And the second channel are, uh, it's basically the correlation and the flows. So to do the, the first test, we, for each large institution, 
we constructed 99 synthetic institutions that have the same size. And we compared the trade of these 99 synthetic institutions with the trades of this large institution. And we want to see if the trade of the large institution are more concentrated and, and larger than the trades of these synthetic institutions. What we find here, first, the synthetic institution, the counterfactual institution, they spread their trades across more stocks, while the actual large institutions, they focus their trades into you know, a smaller subset of stocks. The second observation is when we compare the distribution of trades between the actual institutions and the counterfactual institution. And what we found here is that the largest institutions, they have more extreme trades. Their trades are clustered on the right-hand side. So in other words, we were able to find that 5.9% of the largest asset manager, 5.9% of their trade are higher than 99th percentile than the top percentile of the trades by the, uh, uh, by the counterfactual or the synthetic institutions. So what this means, this means that the large institution, they have a lot of correlation in their trading that will call that, that's causing them to have a more concentrated trades. These trades have a larger size and eventually because of this larger size, there is a large footprint and a large price impact of these trades. We look over time, we find that over time, institutions are actually reducing these uh, trade sizes, um, you know, and probably they are learning to better manage flows and internalize the price impact rather than uh, 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 trading and creating that large footprint. We look at the flows. So think about a large asset manager. Let's look at all their mutual funds associated, affiliated with that manager. Do we see a higher correlation between these funds, a higher correlation of the flows among these funds that's higher than you know, non-affiliated funds, we do this test and we find that there is a significant increase in correlation in the flows uh, because all these funds are affiliated with the same company. Now, the counter argument is that this is not necessarily a bad volatility because uh, those institutions, they increase uh, price discovery, they improve um, uh, information production. So we test whether this volatility is good or bad. And the first test is to look at the the price reversals, basically the auto, the auto correlation in the returns of these uh, stocks. And the idea here, usually, uh, I mean, in, in, in our sample, the, the auto correlation of daily returns is negative. So do we see that these institutions exacerbate, increase these uh, daily autocorrelations, or they reduce them? What we find is actually daily return autocorrelation, they increase for the stocks. So basically, there are more price reversals because of this price impact only for the top 20 institution, and it disappears after that. So it you know, um, um, it confirms our prior that the presence of the largest institutions can lead to noisier prices. Then we do another test, which is we look at the entire portfolio of the largest institutions, and then we look at each stock in this portfolio, and we look at the co-movement and returns between each stock and the rest of the portfolio. So what we do is we regress the excess return of each stock on the excess return of the re remainder of the portfolio, the, the rest of the largest institutional portfolio. And we compute a beta. We call it granular risk beta. And the idea here, if that stock and the rest of the portfolio are subject to the shame, same shocks, you should see an increase in co-movement, an increase in beta that's proportional to the increase in ownership in that stock by that large institution. And what we find is that it does, in fact, that increase in that co-movement is proportional to the 
ownership by these largest institutions. So we conclude that there is some kind of uh, risk creation on the part of the largest asset managers. And basically, this kind of risk creation is uh, uh, causing some trade-off between the benefits of you know, the largest asset managers in terms of governance, in terms of uh, more efficient pricing and costs, uh, and due to the fact that uh, this risk is, is being created. So I look forward to your uh, questions and to the thoughts uh, of our panel. Thank you. So we just rank, let's say there are 4,000 asset managers that fire 13F. We rank them by AUM, and we focus on the largest 10. Okay, so does your thesis change at all with, like, I guess, the largest 20 versus 30 versus 40? Uh, good question. So the effect dies out um, with the largest uh, 20 and, and 30. And what you see here uh, in that uh, chart here, that you know the effect per institution dies out when you go above the, the largest 10. So from the largest 11 to top 20 and from 21 to 30, basically the effect you know, uh, is gone completely. Yeah, so the effect is concentrated uh, in, the ownership of the in, in the ownership by the largest 10 asset managers. Um, well, you talked about the PIMCO effect, which is interesting because PIMCO is a bond shop and then you take treasury and you study your bond equities. Right. So my first question is, question is, was your, were you focused on stocks and you were just using PIMCO as an example on the bonds or did you <coughs> on the bond side as well? Um, we used um, that data because it's available. Unfortunately, the 13F data does not include stock, does not require these asset managers to disclose their bond holdings. And we don't have access to the bond holdings data, but we'd love to test. Uh, actually, the, this effect should be more pronounced with less liquid securities like yeah, bonds. and. Right, it should be much bigger, like the case of PIMCO as documented by the Wall Street Journal. Right. Uh, so um, if we get access to, uh, to a bond holdings data by these largest asset managers, uh, you know, we expect, I mean, we, we would like to test it, but we expect that our priors should hold. If they are visible in equities, then it, they must, you know, most likely they should be, there should be a bigger time stamp, uh, you know, uh, price stamp and, and, and bonds. individual stocks because anyone who's traded stocks on an institutional basis right. knows that if a big holder is selling, you're going to see some dips. Um, right. And that's part of the liquidity or the, the trading and execution costs that you're seeing. That's, that's an excellent point. So what we do here, um, uh, th there are different ways how we dealt with the liquidity. The first one is to include all these potential factors, you know, uh, that might explain the cross-sectional variation liquidity among stocks like log of market cap, the Amihood illiquidity measure, the bid-ask spread, and many of these uh, liquidity vari variables. So we throw them on the, on the right-hand side. But most importantly, that chart here is for only the stocks that are part of the S&P 500. So we run the analysis for all 3,500 uh, stocks, and we then rerun the analysis only for the S&P 500 stocks. 
the large cap stocks, exactly. And we find that the effect on large cap stocks is only significant for the top 10. It dies out for the, uh, the, you know, the next 10 institution or, or the following 10 institutions. So it's significant both economically and statistically for the largest 500 stocks in the and U.S. equity market. You Russell. Say, well, Russell effect as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. has a big effect in S&P. I'm not sure. I don't remember where they're, uh, when they rebalanced and had moved yeah. to, the, to the index. But with ETFs, I mean, that's always the thing. How did you see out there right. investing in those things? How do you account for the change in the Yeah, that's a very good question. So what we do, there are different ways how we address this. Um, the first way, th the first approach is um, to look at the entire time series. 35 years. So in the 80s, the 90s, indexing was not as prominent as it, it is now in the last you know, 10, 15 years. So in that subsample, when we had the Fidelity and you know, all these big asset managers more prominent. Say it again. 10 years ago, the consolidation effect wasn't but, but there was uh, an effect of the largest asset manager like Fidelity. And, and so the effect was there in the 80s. It was there in the 90s. And it is now. So it's not purely, uh, maybe indexing might be a part of that but it's not purely due to indexing. There are other factors that come into play, and we believe it is the correlation among um, the, the different units within the, 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 the largest asset managers that make them so different than having 10 mini managers that will have the same assets. So um, unfortunately, we don't have data to, sh to, I mean, and most of these shocks are not observable. So we see the traces of these shocks in the returns, but we cannot observe all the shocks that this these large institutions are facing, uh, we can only see the outcome of that, which is you know they're trading in the in the stocks. My last question. Sure. Has um, incorporated the effect of shorting into the volatility? So if we can get lending, sec lending, how much volume of sec lending by these largest asset managers? Because one of the economies of scale of these large is that they they can lend more securities. I think this will help us identify the effect much in a much cleaner way. Unfortunately, there is no database that tell us how much BlackRock land of securities. But, but if we have that, I think it would be a huge uh, addition to the paper. Questions? Did you find, I had a question for you. Did sure. You, I, I, I presume it's in one of the controls that you did here. Mm -hmm. but did you find different like industry sectors or sector funds had a different behavior, like the tech sector more susceptible to this kind of an effect versus, say, more diversified fund? Uh, so we look at parent companies, yeah. and usually the parent companies have funds across multiple sectors. In one of the tests here, um, uh, we look at the correlation in the flows. So let's say, you know, BlackRock has, um, you know, sector funds among index funds and, and many other uh, active and uh, you know uh, uh, passive types of funds. So we look, we, we purely look at the correlation among those. Of course, the correlation might not be as high because there might be some timing of uh, you know by, by investors that will switch assets from one sector from one asset class to another. What we saw interestingly is that usually the correlation among these funds is much higher than say the correlation between BlackRock versus Vanguard funds. So we see. A high stickiness in the correlation among the flows. So investors, uh, they are conscious. They want to go to BlackRock and invest in BlackRock funds as a whole because of reputation, uh, of economies of scale, or because of some other factors. So you see a lot of correlation in flows that can eventually play out in the aggregate. 
uh, versus you know spreading out their, their 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 assets or their flows across multiple uh, big companies, and that's one of the factors that we believe is playing out eventually, uh, uh, you know, in creating more footprint by, by these large asset guys. And so, kind of an implication or a takeaway of your analysis then is that if you were investing, what Chris is suggesting is that rather than investing just in BlackRock and, and thinking about a diversified portfolio of funds within BlackRock, you should be thinking about diversifying across fund families. I think one of the implications is that instead of putting uh, $5 billion <laughs> in PIMCO, right. um, it's good to assess your risks to PIMCO, assess your uh, PIMCO effect early on, ex ante, as we say, before you know, uh, deciding to put. So uh, there, there was a, 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 you know, an analogy to this uh, from 2007 and 2008. In August 2007 and June 2008, there was a big shock that happened to quant stocks the Six Sigma type of event. And after that, many of these hedge funds started creating a quant risk factor. So it's good to, I think, one of the implications of the paper, and it's probably a topic for future research, is to assess the risk exposure to the largest asset managers in different asset classes, not only in equity. Obviously, it's much more important in, in less liquid uh, asset classes, and to, to act accordingly. So it good, it's good to diversify, perhaps, across asset managers, not only you know, across asset classes, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank, thank you, Robbie. Thank you.